Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season 18, Episode 27, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, and Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. We're happy to bring on Pat Malloy once again in our segment of player development, building an NHL player, and this week we're going to talk about Evan Rodriguez, Erod. So, Pat... Uh, Let's chat a little bit about this interesting subject because I thought, you know, Evan Rodriguez was given an opportunity in Buffalo because of the Jack Eichel relationship at Boston University. And I think because of that, he was underappreciated as a player. And they thought he was just going to like he was there just because of that relationship, which isn't true or it shouldn't have been true. It was a false narrative from my standpoint. Talk about working with Evan Rodriguez and trying to help him develop what he needed to do to get to the NHL consistently. Because when I watched him play at BU, I thought, well, there's a middle six forward there. In in from my perspective, when I watched in terms of his hockey sense, skating ability, puck skills, I thought there was enough there that that a team could work with to get him into the NHL. Yeah, I mean, I first encountered him in the in the minors in the American League in Rochester, and um, you know, fully aware that he was, you know, he, he played at BU with with Jack Eichel and um, connection there. I, I mean, I, I think that was a you know, obviously a savvy signing at the time in terms of of you know, bringing him out of the NCAA and into the organization. And um, yeah, I mean, my first encounter with him just you know oozed sort of modern day NHL in terms of um, you know, really good puck skills you know, a high intelligence for the game, um, was able to make plays at pace. Um, obviously is a little bit undersized, you know, player. One of the things that we started to focus, especially when you get them in the American league where, you know, that can be a bit of a war at times. Um, but it really places emphasis and it's a proving ground for things like how can I create extra time and space for myself while I'm under fire, while I'm under duress, while I'm under pursuit from, you know, you think about American Hockey League defensemen, especially back in those days, still, you know, the large size physical players that make you earn your ice. And it was a great opportunity for, for a player like Evan to, to be able to recognize, all right, you know, if, how do I create time off for retrieval? How do I extend possession? How can I do some of those things that sort of tilt the, you know, the, the advantage to him as a player and his skill set. And so a lot of what we would do at the time was sort of try to prepare for him for where we were trying to get him versus where he was at, at the American League level. So, you know, things like, you know, dirty puck pickups, rim play, um, loose puck retrievals at various spots of the ice where we could make a, a next net positive play, you know, based on creating a little pocket of time for ourselves. Because what you didn't want is is having him hung up in areas where he's expending a lot of energy and, and a lot of, you know, physical tasking, um, on on battling guys that were just you know physically in a better place than him in terms of size and reach and strength um, you know and then things like off the rush play how do we create um, time and avenues and ability to make plays off the rush based on his skill set so a lot of what we did was really about time creation really about you know creating a, a setting that allowed his skill set to be able to flourish 
Pat, you mentioned the, the loose puck races. And as you know, uh, those occur often off the forecheck. And when you're in the NHL, you got to build a multidimensional game. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, Evan Rodriguez, what, what, what goes into the process of developing the forecheck? And, and what have you seen from it? Because you mentioned the size, not a big player. So he's going to have to deal with a forecheck a little differently than a lot of these bigger players do. So what goes in that process for you as a development coach? Really reading cues and recognizing where pressure's coming from. And so optimizing sense and, and scanning ability, you know, to recognize where, where is the conflict coming from? Where is the heat going to come from? And then using that information to create the next play, whether it means if, you know, you know, I recognize that heat is coming from this particular area and I've got a hard charging defenseman, how can I use my skill set, my deceptive movements to create some, some time or some hesitation in a defender um, to, so that I can make the play I'm looking to play. And so, you know, hockey's still no different in that when you do have a size advantage, um, oftentimes a larger player will come and try to assert their dominance in those settings. And so that's where intelligence really plays a role in terms of scanning the ice and recognizing where is the, the, the threat, that threat assessment, where is it coming from and how do I manipulate it so that I'm able to make a, a positive impact on the next play. And so, you know, building speed to the puck, but then recognizing, you know, points of threat and, and taking that information and sort of using it in, in a chess like setting versus a checkers setting, meaning that, you know, we don't want to put ourselves into to contestable situations that we don't need to um, incurring contact just to incur contact doesn't make you tough or brave. It, it, it makes you maybe uninformed. And those are some of the first things I'll look at, or what are the scanning habits? What are some of the deceptive things that we'll do, you know, post scan to recognize how can I get this player that's trained to try to flush me up and, and eliminate me uh, to get a puck back? How do I get them, you know, working on my turns? And so a lot of that became, you know, scanning habits and, and deceptive habits, especially in the early days. Do you find based on that he would he could easily be an effective like F2 on a four check where the F1 comes barreling in depending on that style of play and he's allowed to scan and find opportunities. So if the play is forced to a certain direction in a certain area that he's able to get into that play before there's engagement. So he, he's getting to that puck or just right to that to this stick instead of having to engage in the body on that for on that forecheck. Yeah. That, that whole concept of, you know, F2 quick being quick to the pile and moving on touch so that you're creating some separation and, and spreading, creating lanes and seams. Um, one of the things that I, I think, you know, in my conversations back in those days, Evan certainly viewed himself as a very evasive player. Um, and, 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 you know, when you pick up on F2, if you can be evasive and, and create movement on touch, change the shape of a team's defense and their structure um, because you're quick to it and then you're evasive in, in the way that you move. Yeah, it really allows you to start to generate offense and modern day offensive hockey, you know, switching sides, whether it be high, low, up, down, um, you know, or side to side. Uh, and creating pockets and seams so that a player with an IQ like that can start to jump into the spots and, and, and get things moving um, to create. And that's, that's really what it is. You know, the old days of the cycle and bang, those are gone. You want to get in and be a disruptor in terms of even a player like him with a size disadvantage. It, it, it's about being a disruptor if he happens to be F1, but then we want to start to, you know, initiate offensive zone movement, for instance. And so by that, I mean, 
you know, can we create movement in the structure or the posture of a team's defense? And, and that doesn't come from standing still or bumping pucks three feet back to each other and, and hoping to out muscle and grind. I think those days are gone. Um, it's about disrupting, creating loose pucks, moving on touch, and then initiating, you know, five man offensive zone, modern hockey. Do you think those times are gone in some respects because they're just there's certain players aren't trained that way? Uh, but we still see some of that, obviously, in the playoffs when it comes down to that hard cycle game. And then how does a player like Evan Rodriguez adapt? Because, you know, obviously he's playing for the Colorado Avalanche. They're going to be in the playoffs. How does he adapt when that tends to escalate more in the playoffs? Well, I think what you see is you're going to see teams that are inherently more physical because intensity ramps up. But what you'll see is the teams that go the distance – in many cases, um, you know, there's that initial conflict that where a puck is contested, but you'll see the very best teams. And most recently you'll see the cup winning teams. Um, they'll disrupt, they'll be heavy long enough to extend possession, but then it, 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 be, it becomes a, how do we generate offense off of that? And things like F two quick things like moving on touch. So, you know, F one's gotta be heavy enough to extend a play. F2 potentially has to be heavy enough, long enough, um, which is a skill um, to extend possession. I mean, it's it's why you see, um, you know, take Patrick Kane as an example. Why is a, you know, not a, a physically imposing player able to dictate the terms of play? He's able to extend possession long enough and create movement on touch that it, it starts to take what is a heavy setting to begin with and, and tilt you know, into his factor or into his favor, the ability to start to create movement, movement creates openings and seams. And, and now we're into it. So it's, you know, really, can we be heavy enough, long enough? And so that was things that we'd work on just in terms of extending possession. We want to be there for a good time, not a long time, but the ability to do it more than one and done um, is, is a key. And, and no matter the size that you are, so things like initiating contact, things like counter contact, um, you know, taking contact to a defender versus um, waiting for the fallout of them to impact you and all those little ways that we can create time to extend. So ultimately we can get into that five man modern hockey offensive zone movement. Well, that obviously makes a lot of sense. And I, and I look at it from Evan Rodriguez standpoint, when you, when people think contact, they always think hard hitting and it doesn't always have to be that way, especially for a guy like Evan, where he needs to get on a defender's hands. And that's contact, but it's not body check contact. So it's, there's always like that nuance between what that really means for a player like that. He needs to get on a player's hands. He needs to like use his leverage properly to get in on maybe knees or hips or underneath an armpit instead of just a full-blown hit. So I always find these conversations really fascinating. Once again, Pat, thanks for coming on our show. We always appreciate it and we look forward to speaking to you next week. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's Pat Malloy. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using 
Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, bantam, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back in power by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now going to talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs prospects. So funny enough, uh, we are going to talk about Matthew Nyes, and he played his first game yesterday as we record this before you take off to Europe. Um what is amusing is that in Matthew Dyes' draft year, the only people that were really talking about him publicly were you and me and Jerome and Mark. And that's it. Like, nobody was really talking about him. And, you know, this was October, November of his draft year. We really sort of, on our show, really talked about him a lot and publicly. Of course, behind the scenes, other people can talk about it as well. But... That's what really is really fascinating. And honestly, if Matthew Nyes wasn't drafted by Toronto or another Canadian team for that matter, if he was drafted by Columbus or Florida or Nashville, no one would really bat an eye. And it's not nothing against the player. It's just that is the marketplace in terms of, you know, how much attention certain players get and prospects get. And Toronto is a vacuum and it's, the biggest market in all of hockey. So that's what happens. Things get blown out of proportion. Do I think he's going to be a, a good player in the NHL? I think he should project as that. And that's what we projected him to be is a power forward who could play on a second line. And that's think that's what his upside will be. And based on what I've seen the last couple of years, nothing's really changed that opinion in that respect, based on, you know, how he's played and how he's progressed thoughts on what you've seen particularly the last couple of years, especially leading into, you know, his first NHL game. Well, to just touch up on what you just said, I mean, look at Kirill Marchenko in Columbus. If he exactly. was in Toronto, he would be talked about every day in the media's 40 goal pace as a 23 year old rookie. So yeah, the, the I think Cy Young, right? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. The Cy Young, Cy Young player right now. Yeah. He's got like three assists and 20, 20 something goals. Um, yeah, uh, Matthew Nyes, you know, the, the thing I give um, credit to with Toronto is that was their first pick uh, back in that draft class, back right. in the 2021 class, right? And that was in, was it 52nd overall? Yes. Something like that, right? So yeah. to hit 
on a player of that significant at that range and having that be your first pick, that's huge. That's what you need to do. You know, if you're, if you're a team that's going all in, you keep uh, trading away your first round picks, which I mean, they have to do in order to, to get ready for playoff time. I mean, if they can get somebody that should theoretically be taken in the first round in a redraft, well, that's, that's exactly what they need to do. And that's exactly what they've done. And Matthew Nyes, uh, as you said, falls into a top six uh, power forward mold. And um, I do, I give a ton of credit to our staff for it. You know, Mark, Mark Edwards loved him from the age of 16. Uh, Jerome Barube did as well. And, and I also loved him. Um, admittedly, one thing that was really interesting about his draft season, and I think one of the reasons that he did drop to Toronto was the fact that it took him a while to get going in that season. He, he had a developmental delay from the age of 16 and uh, sorry, 17, he's one of those players in that draft from the age of 17 to 18 in that first half, he looked very much like he did in his, in his minus one season. And his numbers reflected that, but that was a growth spurt as well. And then there's that awkwardness that comes with that of trying to figure out like athletically, how you handle like that growth spurt. Yeah. Right. He was a, the kid's a horse, but it, it, the skating base was not developing. So that, that was part of the issue. The other was just the consistency and the goal scoring rates. Like the COVID pause occurred and he came back and he wasn't scoring. And yeah. he was old for that class. It's the USHL. His job was to score. He wasn't scoring. So I think that I think that's one of the reasons that some staffs, by the time their midterm meetings happen, they dropped them a lot. I assume that that's what occurred. What happened with us and our staff was that because we always liked them and because we had them ranked very highly going into that, the year. That bias worked to your advantage. It, it did work to our yeah. advantage because it was like, we have to make sure. And so when we jump back on it, I, I remember um, Jerome and myself watching him uh, together. And we're like, well, he's not he's not producing, but he looks really good. Like, well, the process dumb. was the process was there. That's what I liked. He, if he kept doing that, if he kept being consistent in that area, the production was going to come. Yeah, exactly that. He's very dangerous around the net area. Very good vision. The, the thing that was really interesting about Nyes was that there was just so much to mold. Right? The hand, the hands were there. The frame is there. The power elements were there. The, the hockey sense was all there. He just didn't know how to put everything together. And then that second half surge happened, and we saw some unbelievable performances. And honestly, you know, ironically, one of our comps for what he was doing around the net, we're not saying like perfect comparison, obviously it's not, but just in terms of how they function around the net area was, was Austin Matthews. I wonder to this day if that's what Toronto saw was a bit of Matthews in him down low because that's what he looked like to us. It's the way he had used his wingspan, the way he used his hands down low to manipulate and create plays for himself was very similar to Matthews. And uh, the other thing about him was he reminds me a bit of Lucas Raymond in the sense that um, Lucas Raymond is a brilliant technical shooter whose goal scoring rates in his draft season didn't reflect his shooting talent. And that's very similar to Matthew Nyes. Matthew Nyes never had great goal scoring rates, but from a technical perspective, you broke him down mechanically. He had a t- tremendous shot quality, ton, a ton to operate with when looking at pro rates down the line. Right. And that, that's another thing that really jumped us. And that's why we put him as high as we did. I can't remember off the top of my head where we put him, but I know it was in the top 15. And we, we didn't budge him. We, we thought he was there the whole year. I, we couldn't believe he fell 
as far as it did on draft day. But in reflection, thinking back to it, it was like, oh, imagine if we didn't go back in February to watch him again and really hone in on him. And, and that was, uh, we got a bit fortunate from that regard and, and that's where he landed. But I really think that Toronto has a bona fide top six power. power. I, I more of a pass first player. I think he always will be. Yeah, a power playmaker who's going to be extremely dangerous off the walls and around the net area. And that's a, that's a heck of a player. And those are the ones that actually translate more readily. You know, if you look back, it's the play, it's the power forwards who are more primary playmakers than shooters that actually translate to the NHL more than the primary shooters do. It's it's an interesting theme that's developed that I've noticed through research. Uh, let's talk about Nikita Gribyankin as well, who I think is really underrated in terms of another player I actually drafted in my own pool, uh, just because of like the potential upside. If you hit, it's a big hit for Toronto in that respect. Thoughts on his continued development? Yeah, Nikita Grabyonkin was my top overage player in last year's class. Um, I pounded the table. I splintered the table uh, to, to try to get him moved up the list as much as uh, Mark Edwards willing to let me have him move up. Um, Grabyonkin has every technical aspect you're looking for in a modern-day top nine uh, forward at the NHL level. Phenomenal edge work. He's a he's a he's a pass first player, much in the same way I consider Matthew Nyes to 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 kind of be that. I mean, Nyes has really developed into a true dual threat. Where I I, I would argue I don't think Grabyonkin will ever develop into a true dual threat. So maybe I shouldn't say Grabyonkin's more of a of a primary playmaker. But uh, Nikita Grabyonkin, the thing that it makes him a very unique prospect is his ability to manipulate the first layer from the outside, get below the goal line, and find the low to high danger option. He is a brilliant technician from that perspective. Um, Grabyonkin is uh, he's coming off an exceptional season. Now at the KHL level, I think it, you could make an argument uh, uh, that he was much better in some viewings than Daniil Yurov, for instance. And that was one of the reasons that I liked him in the first place is when you watch them in the same system in Stalnia over when they were in the MHL together last season, uh, Grabyonkin outperformed him. And now Grabyonkin was older for that class. And uh, he was with the team the whole year where you had Yurov going up back and forth between the KHL and the MHL. So there's an adjustment period a little bit for him. Um, but th- the point is like, when, a, when another player is keeping up with what is considered a consensus top 15 player in a draft, uh, you take notice. And so uh, I, I was a huge fan of Greg Bianchin. Um, I'm going to have shift by shifts uh, of him in my scouting school that I'm still developing. Uh, I'm, I've been a big, big fan the whole time. And uh, so far, he's he's looking uh, like he's tracking. Absolutely. He's, he's going to try. For instance, right now in a redraft, he does not go later than the end of the first. So, again, the least of hit potentially – it takes years. We'll find out. But the Leafs have potentially taken uh, another uh, another home run pick here late because I know that the autumn, I think, in the fifth round. So for, for me, that's I consider that incredible value. Uh, one of my favorite players in last year's draft, I absolutely think he can play as long as he can continue to add enough weight and, and learn to fight through checks, learn to take, uh, to take the hits and be able to just – feel a little more comfortable dealing with more range on defensemen as he continues to develop. But so far, so good in the KHL. Well, that's one of the advantages because he's 20 years of age. There's a couple of years. He has a couple more years before he, he actually needs to come over. He doesn't need to come over right now. Like he could still spend, he could spend two years in the KHL and then come over as a 22 year old and allow that to happen. So that, you know, because <clears throat> The primary concern of always bringing over, you know, Russians early is they want to play in the NHL. They don't really want to spend a tremendous amount of time in the American League. Advantage is obviously it's Toronto, so he can get a condo or apartment in Toronto. He's at the Marlies. 
leaves her next door. So that's a little bit different in terms of that type of scenario about bringing him over. But I like the fact that he could leave him there for two more years and then bring him over. And then that physical maturity that you talked about and that consistency of playing in the KHL for a couple more years, that is going to round out that part of the game. You know, when you always jump or level, there's going to be issues in terms of consistency because you're just trying to adapt. Right. And you want to get, you want to get past the, adaptation phase into more consistency phase from that standpoint. So that's where I think that sort of that lies in for him as well. Uh, we're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio. We'll be back with more Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, I can speak today. Maple Leafs prospects talk right after these messages. Instat hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat instats video editing tools visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics the junior prospect hockey league is western canada's newest elite developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level the jphl features professional coaches and skill development coaches along with comprehensive practice game and academic schedule allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs to learn more and see why the jphl is the ideal choice for your student athlete and family visit juniorprospectshockeyleague.com Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're talking about the Toronto Maple Leaf prospects. At least I said that properly this time. So let's talk about Dennis Hildeby. Uh, we just got a chance to see him play his first pro game in North America with the Toronto Marley. So, yes, he faced a horrendous amount of rubber. Uh, I'm sure he'd want a couple of these back, but when you face 20 shots in the first period, that's one. I think he had like 50 shots thrown his way. I mean, that's not include the ones that missed, just like on him. So thoughts on, you know, what you've seen this year and then his introduction to the American Hockey League, which where I just thought that he didn't receive a lot of help from his team and kind of got left out to dry a little bit, but he battled. So there, it, it just didn't seem to phase him. It was just like, oh, all right, it is what it is. This game, let's. Uh, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to make a save. Yeah, you know, he's always had the competitive makeup. Yeah, even when he was getting lit up in his initial draft years, where he wasn't drafted at all out of Timber system. Yeah, when he was on four or five goals, he would still compete very, very hard. 
and that that's a critical indicator of a goalie that's actually capable of playing long term. Um, yeah, De Dennis is a unique goalie for me because uh, he was our top ranked goalie uh, last year uh, at Hockey Prospect. Um, I've never done that before in a draft season. I've never had an overager as my top ranked goalie, which speaks to one, the lack of depth in that class. Uh, and it also speaks to uh, my love of this player. I, I'm a huge fan of Dennis Hillman. I think Dennis is, is going to be a, a pretty unique goalie at the NHL level sooner rather than later. Um, the, the thing with Dennis is I've managed to opportunity to watch every game he's played this year. So it's really given me a unique insight to his development and where he, where he lies. The, the big thing is that the main area of concern is still the main area of concern, and that's what he's going to have to really iron out as he's developing the AHL before he gets his opportunity at the NHL level, and that has to do with his glove hand. Uh, this 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 goalie is not he doesn't have a horrible glove hand. He can track well on his glove side, but he has a very difficult time with the consistency in terms of just his average just his catch rates, routine saves. Sometimes he just bobbles bobbles pucks on that side, and other times, especially shots that are high danger, usually high slaughter in slot, and they're going against the grain and are labeled for low glove. He has more difficulty getting those shots. One All of the right. reasons has to do with his size. Make right? him a Very first baseman in baseball in the in the off season. <laughs> hey, you're on first base, it. Dennis. There you go, buddy. Yeah, Figure it yeah. out. No, yeah, give him a Jays jersey and, and see how he performs. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's the one thing I'm sure that they're targeting. I'm sure they're the, the, the thing that's fascinating to me about that though is it goes back to what we talked about with his battle level. So, for instance, one game I, I watched against Lulia this year, they knew. And they targeted him the entire game on that side. And it was very similar to the NHL Marley's game where he's let, he, was, he was getting peppered, 45 shots on net, right? And he had to – a lot of them were high danger. And so um, they labeled and targeted that glove side constantly. They got five past him, four were on that side, labeled too, too low, too high uh, on his glove. And uh, the game-winner OT was also uh, against the grain, low glove. My point in saying this is that he also made some spectacular glove saves in between those goals. He's still competing. He's still battling. He's still figuring it out. So my point is that he also he already is a very tall goalie, but he's very athletic. He can transition in and out of his butterfly very quickly. He can drop into his butterfly very quickly. I bring that up because he's only 21 now. By the time you project him to be 23, 24, he should be able to explode down that much further than he already is, that will help him get to those low against the grand glove side shots that he's letting in currently. Because the rest is there. He he has a lot of upside. He can, he can his ability to the fluidity he has at his size is truly rare. Uh, I think he's tracking already better than let's bring up another big goalie that I had a lot of time for. Not not as technically efficient as Hildeby. I don't project him to be as good as Hildeby, and that would be uh, Matt Sogard. Uh, right. So if you look at the differences between somebody like Hildeby and Matt Sogard, um, it, the, the big difference is fluidity between movements when it comes to incorporating reverse VH, then having to stand back up and create a post integration, then has to jump off and create an overlap. Then he has to transition into a lateral, lateral adjustment. When he does these things, he does them at a quicker rate. And you must do the, the reason the people that keep asking, why is Devin Levi so successful right now? Why is Dustin Wolf so successful? It's because they can make these adjustments so rapidly that allows them to basically be technicians where even if they misidentify the first shot or if there's a chaotic play and something bounces off a shin pad and it makes them readjust, it allows them to do that because they're just so quick. Dennis Hildeby has some of that functional fluidity in a much larger frame. And that's, I assume, why Toronto were big fans of him 
uh, when evaluating him last year in Farge's system, it was one of the big reasons I had him as the top rated uh, goalie. Let's talk about uh, Topi Nimala. And, you know, when we talk about a Finn, that's actually one of the, I started laughing when we were talking about the, the bad glove hand is that the Finns generally have a really good glove hand because they play a version of baseball. So they're so used to that, that catching mechanics, that eye-hand coordination, whereas sometimes I think in other European nations, because maybe they don't play baseball at all, it, you know, there's a distinct advantage when it comes to the Finns in that respect. So I just found, always found that interesting thoughts on Topi Nimala in terms of his continued development and next steps for him, because now he, you know, he's got to come over. He played that game. He you know, got a little time in the Marlies thoughts about that transition of coming over from Europe into the Toronto Marlies and then how that is going to all incorporate, because that to me is always the biggest thing is like, how do they adjust? I look at that first 20, you know, probably first 20 games, second 20 games, and then kind of go from there and see how things transpire. Because, you know, clearly he has enough skill set, hockey sense, and skating ability to play at a pro level over here. But what's his upside? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny is like a lot of these prospects we're talking about today are incredibly high on. You know, Hilde, yeah. Rebianc, and Nice. Like I, I went against – anyone and everybody in the industry that was that was saying that they were I ranked him too high, right? Uh, it's funny, I'm the opposite with Topi Nemo. I was low on him. I didn't like him. They performed really well. Then I watched him in Liga. I didn't like him again. I watched him I watched him internationally. Uh, and then I saw him at the U20 and I was like, oh, okay, I'm wrong. You know, it <laughs> was like, okay, he's, he's looking pretty good now. Um, yeah, it, it, all, it all comes together because of his sense for the game, right? Very, very intelligent player. Uh, I felt he was very raw in his initial draft season. Just his exits – his retrievals, his decision-making uh, through the neutral zone, I found a little perplexing. I, I mean, I, I saw it at the line, uh, but I didn't love I didn't love his projectable defending because uh, he's not a great skater. Um, I'm somebody that falls in the category, if you're not a great skater as a defenseman, you're not very tall, I usually don't have much time for you. I usually get very nervous very quickly about those types of players uh, translating. That's because when you Range. project their transitional rush defense, okay, you're putting up against monsters. We, we mentioned... Kirill Marchenko, Matthew Nyes, and Nikita Grabyonkin. When he projects to go up against those players, he is in a world of hurt for multiple reasons. Matthew Nyes is going to overpower him, run through him. Okay, Nikita Grabyonkin, he can't match Grabyonkin's edge work in any capacity. He's going to get – those are line-driving top six potential forwards who play a manipulative down-low game. That's the type of game I thought Topi Nemo would really struggle with. I think it is the game that he will honestly always have a bit of difficulty with. However, I give him full marks. I think he has improved his game dramatically already in that area. And I'm sure it's something that Toronto's honing in on. Um, and I, I really believe that if that can come together just enough where it doesn't have to be great, just zero sum effect, as long as it's not too bad, he can take over the game in other ways with his pop movement, his intelligence, be able to get through the neutral zone. He looks like a potential power play two option uh, in terms of quarterbacking. So as long as he can do, as long as he can hold, again, just zero sum, just, just, you know, if he, if he allows two goals, make sure he get two goals back type of situation for him, then I'm sure he'll be an NHL player. I do think he needs an insulator. I think some people probably argue with me on that, but I, I think he needs an insulator personally. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that Toronto has brought in this new defense that they have is because I think they're well aware that some of these defensive prospects they have, including Timothy Lilligren, who's not a prospect anymore, but you look at his development. I mean, they need insulation, right? So yeah. I think he falls under that category. But uh, again, I think they got him one third round. 
Like yes. they, we're talking about players that are getting really late who are, are, have tremendous impact. And again, when we have talked about the Shane through and through, we talked about remember Columbus, we talked about Stanislaw Sposal, third round yeah. pick, home run, third round pick, potential top pairing defenseman, at least top four defenseman. That's what he's projecting to be right now. Maybe top pair. Uh, Topi Nemo looks like to project at least be a very adequate puck mover who could be put on a power play too. I mean, third round pick, it's amazing. Rebianco was a fifth. Dennis Hillaby was what fourth round pick. Matthew Nye's end of the second. second. This is this is how you do it. If if you need to trade your first, make sure you get players who can play, and they're not just adequate players; they're very interesting players. Well, well, the other thing is, so Toronto has the advantage that they're going to be patient with their guys. They're not; they'll go out into free agency and fill holes to provide to buy time, because they're not buying players; they're buying time for prospects to get better. And that's what they're going to do moving forward. If you look at their strategies, you know, and people start looking at, oh, they're trying to build this. It's twofold. Yes, they're trying to fill in gaps to make long playoff runs, but they're also you know, buying time for these guys to come in in one year, two years to be able to fill these gaps with these entry-level contracts. So that's what it's, it's always a two-headed monster or sometimes three, depending on the situation from that respect. So that's why I'm really interested to see what happens with all these prospects. And I think for, for Nemo, when I watch him, he's really has to disrupt the play before it gets below the dots. That's where he has to, for him, he's got to kill plays before that. And so, Angles, angles, stick, gap has to be really, really good because the minute he's got a turn, then that changes his effectiveness from that standpoint. So, but Brad and I are going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. Uh, we'll uh, when we come back, we'll uh, continue continue to talk about a few more prospects in a couple different areas right after these messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics the junior prospect hockey league is western canada's newest elite developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level the jphl features professional coaches and skill development coaches along with comprehensive practice game and academic schedule allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs to learn more and see why the jphl is the ideal choice for your student athlete and family visit juniorprospectshockeyleague.com Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. 
It's Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. This is the segment where we bring in Jason Buchla for our Scouts Perspective segment. And the topic this week is waiting the regular season versus playoff games when evaluating players for the NHL draft. So, Jason, I'm going to put your feet to the fire and like, how do you weight that? Cause obviously there could be teams that don't make the playoffs and you can't punish those players. Then there, then there's players on really bet on teams that are not the greatest just squeak in and maybe they get bounced in four or five games. Right. So you're trying to not blame players for what's going on in the entire organization. So how do you weight that playoff performance and the situation they're in the environment they're in versus what happened in, the regular season well it's obviously a challenge Shane you know you have to keep things in perspective um, the way you just position that is very accurate in that you might get a team like uh, the Regina Pats uh, you know playing a team like Saskatoon in the first round they took him to seven games uh, but at the end of the day really uh, the depth of Saskatoon wins out in the series and now how accountable do you want to hold other people besides Connor Bedard who had 20 points in seven games um, you know, responsible for the results. Um, I always go by the body of work. There's there's almost segments that I divide the season up into. Um, clearly the beginning, you know, call it October till the end of November um, will be a segment. And then, you know, really for draft eligible players, especially, um, and first year players in, in the CHL, um, I give them till Christmas to really establish an identity that I can grab hold of and run with. So even in their rookie season in the CHL, um, they might have been held back. Like here in London with the Knights, generally speaking, the first-year players don't get a lot of ice time, not a lot of mileage. Second year, it's probably going to take them till Christmas time to really identify themselves and, and their elements to rise to the top. So um, I take all of the information, I throw it into the melting pot, and I hold them marginally accountable in certain fair categories prior to become playoffs. So um, goal scoring, you know, point production, you might have uh, – you know, been a proficient score in regular season, but to your point, you're an eighth place team playing a first place juggernaut. They're obviously going to key in on, key in on you and that's going to make life difficult on you. So what am I looking for? Um, that extra push through that second layer of push, extra layer of compete um, off the puck detail. Give me something else besides what I already know you can do so I can grab hold of it and say that in a pinch, he recognizes that he's got to be, more aggressive on the back check. He's got to win key face-offs more often. Maybe he's got to bump up against people as well. How much is that process related? So you can see a player and the process is there and his habits are there, but you know, the, maybe the puck's just not going in, but he's doing all the things that you're the right things to make those things happen. And maybe he comes out of a, like a five game or four game series and has one goal and maybe could have had three, like, how do you weight that situation as well when you're you're really looking at habits? Because it's the best habits that end up really pushing a player through into the pro ranks. That's exactly that's exactly it. So there's only one puck, and there's only six forwards, generally speaking, maybe nine on the really good teams that kind of slide into those scoring type of roles. And so as you're uh, coming through the systems, um, you know, you have to be able to do more than one thing very well to – Get the to, to earn the confidence of your coach um, at the minor league level first, and then obviously when you make it to the National Hockey League. So um, that whole process, 
I need to know that you can do this and this on top of that, unless you're absolutely exceptionally elite. So like a William Nylander coming through, we all knew that he was going to cheat off the puck and, and his back check was going to be, his back check detail was going to be marginal, but going up ice, he was in that super elite category that all we really need him to be is average in the other ones. Yeah. If he fell below, if he falls below that line, now his element might not win out as much. That becomes a concern. So there's definitely a process involved and the, and the athlete has to be able to show us that, you know, we need some details in key parts of the game. How much do you change your weighting depending on the league that you're evaluating? Because obviously in the CHL, they're all seven seven game series, but you get into the USHL when there's threes and fives, or you're in college hockey where there's a lot of one and dones. So um, do you increase the weighting based on those circumstances, particularly if the performance is at home or on the road, because those can be different weighting for different players as well? hundred percent. So situational weighting is what I would classify that as, um, you know, when you talk about the college guys, you know, uh, generally speaking in the tournament, even in like in the big 10 tournament, when you're, when you're one and done, they're, they're playing like their hair's on fire, right? Like they're just like, they're so emotional. They're so amped up for that 60 minutes. Whereas it's way more like a chess match. When you get into seven game series, there's more wear and tear on the body. You can wear down your opponent, et cetera. So, um, you really have to evaluate it. The USHL is an interesting anomaly, I would say, because I find that come playoff time in the USHL, when the returnees from like college hockey in Minnesota and different uh, ranks uh, have come back to the USHL at the end of the year, some of them are high-end prospects. Now they're playing in playoff games. You, you've got a lot of different things going on in that league all at one time. Um, so that was, that one's um, a little bit of an anomaly for me, but um, it just comes with experience. I don't know how else to put it to you. Like you have to be, you have to have that experience of taking in all these different levels and all the different situations and how the players react to them um, around the world. And then don't forget the U18s are on the horizon for those those players who didn't make playoffs or got eliminated in the first round of some playoffs. And now that's going to be a whole new thing. So um, a lot of moving parts at the end of the year, but uh, uh, play to your element, play to your strengths, but please show me that you can do something else in a key element or a key time of the game. How much do you put into consideration um, the difference between decisions and choices where you have players who will make hard choices like they're, they're going to take a massive hit to get that puck out, or they're going to put their body in the way of a shot, or, you know, they're, they're coming in and they're battling in front of the net, or they're, taking on a player that is much bigger than them, but they have to do it because if that player gets loose, then there's a scoring chance against them. How much do you take that into consideration as well as like people outside of their element willing to do things that they normally wouldn't have done? Now, anytime somebody sacrifices for the good of the team and the good of the result, they're getting a star beside their name for me. I mean, that's all part of winning at the hardest time of year. There's no question about it. I mean, skill guys have to, uh, have to somehow uh, escape their comfort zone a little bit. And conversely, you're always going to find the, the, that checker. There's always one or two checkers come playoff time, even in the NHL, who all of a sudden go on this run and, uh, you know, they can't do anything but score goals in the playoffs. It's, it's like an anomaly, but it's it's fascinating. So um, it's important, though, for, for me to see a, a guy sacrifice and go to that extra level. From, a, like, a defensive standpoint, when I look at defensemen in, in the playoffs, 
I always try to look for the consistency in terms of, you know, their gap control, puck, your stick placement, you know, angling, um, engaging into players, you know, from that, it's not necessarily always the puck movement. It's actually the, all their defensive habits that I tend to look forward first, because it's like, because the, the, the amount of competition and the strength of competition ramps up so much that it's really the focus for the defenseman really comes to defending and then getting the puck out of your zone. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, it's, it's, it's the hardest time of year for defensemen and goaltenders. Um, you know, the forwards still tend to get away with uh, things more often, even in the playoffs compared to those other two positions. But to your point for defensemen, it's read, react, game management. You know, so you, or you can flip the order, game management uh, as a result of their read and react. But sometimes less is more in playoffs. Even if you're a transitional D, take what's in front of you and manage the game accordingly um, because it's all about the result. That's one of the things I noticed if you're looking at when people start to compile different types of data sets and they're saying, well, it's this equals this. But I said, what strength of competition really matters in, say, for instance, the CHL or the USHL, when you're compressing and half the half the teams are not going to make it to and not the queue. That's a little bit different. But a lot of these bottom end teams don't make it. That really changes, especially into the second rounds when you know teams get pushed to push to the side. That to me, I change my weighting a little bit based on strength of competition. You know, again, I agree with that because, uh, and I do that in season too. I don't know if you do this, but, yes. yeah. um, you know, I'll manage my grid and I'll manage my expectations going in to see a prospect uh, based on who the opponent is, if it's at home, if it's on the road. And I'll break down that data because if he's scoring 60%, 65% of his uh, points against the bottom tier of the league and on the road against the top tier of the league, he's not only not scoring, but he's a minus, a significant minus, let's just say. Now I have a concern on my hands and I really have to break that player down further. So, um, you know what, it's, it's a fascinating time of year. It's a challenge, but it speaks to their preparation and, uh, and their level of stress and how to handle duress at, uh, at the hardest time of year. That, that's to me. I always find that the players that play the best on the road in back-to-back situations or three and four nights against the toughest competition are the ones who have a better chance of translating into the NHL. Uh, once again, Jason, I want to thank you very much for your insight. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Great. Thanks for having me, Shane. Take care. That's Jason Bukla. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat stats video editing tools visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information instat the institute of statistics 
The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back in power by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. I'm now going to talk about the finale of the 2023 NCAA Frozen Four which was one of the most exciting finals that I've seen in a very long time. Anytime it can go into overtime and it's nail biting. um, That's great. Now, obviously it didn't last very long, but doesn't matter. That wasn't the point. It's just like, it was uh, electric in the building. And, you know, as I know the Minnesota fans are, you know, incredibly disappointed, but, you know, collectively it's hard not to cheer for Quinnipiac. They're a smaller university. They have, you know, they have to recruit in a different way. They can't recruit the same as the bigger teams. And, you know, Rand Pecknell has been there since the absolute beginning when they were a Div 3 team, worked them into a Div 1 team, and then finally got to the summit of the mountain. And obviously, when you've seen him after the game, he was just, for a guy who, you know, is a talker, he had a hard time trying to like convey his emotions. He was just, he was just overcome. It was actually, it was really great. I like when the underdog team wins once in a while. Um, Cause it doesn't happen as often as it needs to, to be sometimes. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, just like the journey they were on to get there. They took down three big 10 schools. You know, yeah. they beat Merrimack in the first round. After that, it was Ohio state, Michigan, Minnesota, <laughs> the yeah. three best teams in arguably the best league all year they had to go through three of them to uh to, to end up with the national championship and they did it the same way they've played all year and, and we you talked about it last week and it's exactly what happened with minnesota the second they touched the puck there was a quinnipiac jersey on their back on their shoulder in their face <laughs> it didn't matter yeah. right from the start of the game i mean skylar brindamore kind of set the tone right from the start of the game uh ended up taking a minor penalty for it but hits coster right at the beginning of the game and you could kind of tell all right this is this is the type of night it's going to be and for me, is just I love that style of game, that constant pressure, like just constantly. If we don't have the puck, we're gonna go get it. We're not gonna wait for you to make a play. Like if you beat us, it's gonna be with a great play. And when Minnesota went, went up two nothing, I was like, uh oh, are they gonna climb back? And they just sort of like they're so methodical in the process, right? They don't deviate ever. 
Um, and that, I think that's part of the advantage of when they recruit certain types of players is that, yes, in certain leagues, they were very good players. Obviously, in the, maybe they were coming out of the USHL or the BC Hockey League or Alberta Junior Hockey League or Ontario Hockey League, and they collect these players. Yes, they're very good players, but they're not the you know, the superstars that come out of like high school or out of the program or, you know, the, the top, top end guy of the USHL. So they're all those players are willing to sacrifice. They're like, oh, okay, you want me to do this job? Yeah, I did more before, but that's okay. I'm going to do this. It, they're so collective as a team. For me, I really appreciate that. But it re- and that also comes down to their head coach because that's what he preaches. It's what he preached when I talked to him at the World Juniors, and it's what like having to watch him, you know, build this program for over like decades. It you know finally they broke through on that style of play. Yeah, it's funny because every time he was asked about it last week, his answer was the same. You know, he's like, "We've been we've been playing this way for." 13 14 years <laughs> like, you know we haven't really deviated from what we've been trying to do for 13 14 years and uh it, it's been that long it has been i mean you go back to the frozen four they made in 16 the frozen four they made i think it was oh their national championship game in 13 against yale yeah. so you know they've been on this stage before first time they were able to break through and win a national championship but uh they had been on this stage multiple times in the last and the decade teams that, yeah yeah and the teams that get back there they get back there because of consistency and they've been the most consistent team, I think, in the country the last 10 years. Yes. And one of the things, I, it's consistency in terms of the style of play, their messaging from top to bottom, regardless if it's from coaching staff or the administration or like senior players or junior players to the sophomores and the freshmen, the recruiting process, it's all the same. It's the same consistency in terms of identity and communicating that identity when they recruit. Because I've talked to people who like have sent their kids to Quinnipiac or, you know, they've been recruited by Quinnipiac and it is like you could not, there's no deviation, which is I really appreciate. This is who we are. This is our identity. And are you a fit? And if you're not, that's okay. We're going to go find our fits. It's funny. I, I don't know if I if I told you this last week when when I joined you before the, the national championship game, but uh, Rand talked about that. I think it was on Wednesday during the practice day. Uh, he said his, his son's a 2005. He's got an 05 son. So he said, you know, he's out there. He's watching a lot of games, watching his kid play. And he said there's times where he's called Joe Dumay, the top assistant, who will probably get a head coaching job soon and say, Joe, hey there's this kid i really like him maybe we should look at him and 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 joe will go no no he's not a bobcat you'll you'll pull your hair out he's not a bobcat he's not fit he's not gonna fit our uh our culture we we, we're not that's not someone we're interested in and rand just goes okay (laughs) um but like yeah they get they're very specific in the type of player they recruit both in in terms of style but also high character players i mean it's yeah it's it's, uh they search and it's a must it's funny because i was i was talking to rand at the world juniors and I was asking him about like mental and emotional attributes. What, like, what are your priorities? And then he sort of like spelled some, these are the kind of the things that I like to look for. And, you know, one of the things that really jumped out to me is resiliency. He goes, I want those players, you know, if they get too high or they get too low, they bounce to what they get back to their equilibrium of when they play, how they play their best. So like emotionally, mentally, they, you know, there's going to be ebbs and flows, but they get back to where they need to be right away. And that's what I'm looking for is those kind of players, because in college hockey, as he said, you know, it's a lot of mistakes 
and you have to basically, you better have a short memory. Um, otherwise, you're just not going to survive, particularly in a high pressure type of environment that Quinnipiac pushes in terms of their style of play, right? It's just, you're going to be go, 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 go. Um, and that takes a lot of out of people. So if you don't have some resiliency, you can't handle that. Yeah. And I think you see it too, just in what happened on Saturday, you know, you fall behind two, nothing in a national championship game. There's some adversity there, right? You, you, you got a high, a pretty high character group. If you're able to settle it down and respond and come back and chip away. And chip away, especially, I mean, how could you not get frustrated with the way they were playing in the third period? Was not able to find a goal. Yeah. Minnesota was still up two to one. Period. Couldn't get a puck in the net. They don't score until what was about the 18 minute mark of the period, but they stayed with it. They stayed with it. There wasn't a lot of frustration there. They played desperate, which is what you need to do, but there wasn't a lot of frustration in their game. You didn't see him take any, any penalties in the third because they're getting frustrated or not being able to get a puck through. Again, like there's, it goes back to that that high character guy that they're out there recruiting. They can kind of just stay mentally composed, and and they did that on Saturday. I, I thought you you were going to see some frustration out of them in the third, especially late in the third, where they just how many chances did they have? Uh, you know, and Justin Close just made every probably single four save. or five really great. Minnesota twenty six to eight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, four or five really I mean, great. They have shot them twenty six to eight in the final two periods. Yeah, it was nuts. yeah, and just and to have those chances go by, you don't get the putt. That's it, it. That can frustrate a group. It didn't frustrate them, which was noticeable. Right, and that's part of you know their process as a coaching staff is stick to the plan, stick to the plan. It's like what you do. It's like a mantra for them, and it works out. Like just don't worry because we have proof of concept. We have done this before. This is nothing mm-hmm. new. It's just we're doing it again, right? We're just doing it again. It's no big deal. We've done this before. Relax. So, oh, before I let you go, we should talk about um, the Hobie Baker. Um, so, as we both had predicted, it was going to be Adam Fentilli. And I was like, I was watching it closely because guaranteed you were going to get a phone call from somebody on this station <laughs> that if it wasn't Adam Fantilli, don't get me wrong. The other um, nominees were obviously worthy of like winning the Hobie. I just thought it's very rare for a freshman to do what Adam Fantilli did. Um, your thoughts in terms of like, I'm not going to ask you what exactly was said in the discussions amongst the, you know, the committee, but you know, were you surprised after those committee, those discussions and the voting mm-hmm. that, you know, it was going to end up being Adam Fantelli because I know you can never disclose until after it's done. Yeah. So I was, yes, I had Fantilli one on my number one on my ballot. Um, was I concerned that he wasn't going to win? Yeah, I was with, with some of the discussions that were out there about, uh, you know, people calling into question character, which is a component to the award uh, because he had a fighting major earlier in the year. Oh, you know, I, come on. That's not character. That, that that's an, that's of- an, that is character from my standpoint, right? Yeah, but I, I thought, yeah, I thought it was a little absurd that that we were or the people were trying to discount the kid's character because he, he got a fight. It, he got a fight. And it wasn't even really a fight. I mean, he threw a punch after he took a jab in the face. Like he got punched first in that scrum. Yeah. Uh, and and I, it was just funny. And I, and I won't share names, but there was an NHL scout on the call who at one point, uh, you know, chimed in and said, hey, you know, it's my first year here, but are we serious with this right now? 
<laughs> uh, when that conversation was happening. And so I had Fantilli one, but I did think there was a movement of, for lack of a better term, anti-Fantilli voters that, that may have kept him out of the number one spot. What people don't realize, when the top three are announced, Logan Cooley, Matthew Nyes, Adam Fantilli, I have people ask me, oh, well, you guys vote again now on the top three, right? No. The it top three were just the top. Yeah, yeah they, it was the top three vote getters out of the top ten. So there was a there was this thought that, well, Cooley and Nyes could split the vote, therefore Fantilli is going to win. If you were just voting on the top three, I could see that. Sure. But my thought was, how, how many people put Cooley one, Nyes two, Fantilli three? And yes. could that be enough to keep him out? We don't know what the final vote tally was, obviously. I had Fantilli number one on my ballot, so I'm happy that he won. I thought it was the right choice. Uh, I had, I think I had Lane Hudson number two, who was not in the top three. And then I had Cooley number three. So I had two of the three finalists in there, uh, but I had Fantilli number one and, and was happy to see that he won the award. Well, Mike, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Really appreciate it. Look forward to speaking to you next week. We're going to talk about the portal and the chaos of that ensues with that. <laughs> so we're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back in power by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and students to another level at JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. Once again, we have Patrick Williams on to talk about the American Hockey League in our segment around the AHL. Patrick, let's uh, chat about the Rockford Icehogs. Lots of turnover in the last two, you know, last year and a bit. Obviously, turnover at the NHL level, now turnover at the American Hockey League level. Although there is some stability in there. Mark Bedard's been there since ever. I think since 2007 or something. 2008. He's been there since they were in Norfolk. Right. That's how so, far back. 
Eagles, and they That's, get to Rockford in 07. So. Right. So, I mean, from that standpoint, I mean, that gives us some stability because everyone knows Mark and, you know, it's that's an e- it's easier for him to transition new staff in. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens with the continued development of Anders Sorensen as a coach, a uh, Swedish coach in the American Hockey League. I think that is an interesting different step. Obviously, he was an assistant coach and then got moved up to the co- from the coaching standpoint. It's a very young team in Rockford. I think they have one player that's 30 in Rocco Grimaldi. And the, I think the average age is just over 24 years of age. So very young team from American League standards. So thoughts on how you think this is sort of evolved through this season? Because it always takes about a year for everybody to sort of, you know, find their way and find their place. Well, yeah, you know, I think you have to start with Chicago first, right? Like, so obviously there was a, ton of turnover in the front office with Chicago. Um, Kyle Davidson comes in as the general manager. It's kind of the first and foremost move that uh, the Blackhawks made. And with that comes a different philosophy, a different way of doing things with the American League affiliates. And that's exactly what's happened. I mean, if if you notice, Rockford's been very aggressive at the uh, the, uh, NHL and AHL trade deadlines. They brought in a a ton of – talent, you know, including uh, in Grimaldi coming over from San Diego, you know, to help pull this team into the playoffs. And they've they've had their ups and downs as a young team you you would expect them to, to have in, in the second half. Um, you know, going into the weekend, they're in, in decent shape to get a playoff spot. They'll have to go through the play-in round, which is not ideal. It's a best of three. Right. But it's a foot in the door. It's a chance for somebody like Lucas Reichel, for example, um, to come in and, you know, play that many more meaningful games rather than everyone going home um, on Sunday. So um, that's been a big priority for them to get in the playoffs, uh, get those young young players some real, um, real experience and just, you know, generate some, some optimism among the fan base, among really the entire operation, right? Like it's been obviously a rough year with the Blackhawks. And um, if you can have some success at the, the AHL level, all the better. Thoughts on Anders Sorensen as a coach and how, you know, he's just made that transition from assistant coach to head coach. And then when you're the man, it's a, it's a different situation because you have, you know, multiple uh, competing events going on. Yes. You want to make the playoffs because you want to one to drive some revenue, but also get experience. But then there is player development as well because Chicago Blackhawks are in a rebuilding mode. And, you know, so all priorities on development, but, you also want to win too. Yeah, Sorensen's an interesting case. Like, um, you know, so when there is that coaching change uh, with Quenville, right? Like Derek, basically everyone got got moved up a notch, right? So like Jeremy Carlton went up to the Hawks. Um, you know, you, you saw that that transition to Andrew Sorensen. Um, you know, he had been a development coach, like a basically, you know, skills coach. Yeah, um, he, he was somebody that you know had worked um, in the Chicago area and kind of got his, his foot in the door with the Hawks uh, several years back. Eventually, ended up going to Rockford as their development coach, and uh, you know, kind of was pressed into action as an assistant coach. So this was, you know, really his first real opportunity um, anywhere near the pro level. Uh, you know, in terms of an actual bench coaching role, you know, as an assistant or head. And eventually when Derek King went up, um, he was 
bumped up to uh Sorensen was bumped up to head coach in Rockford. So, you know, he's he's kind of had a you know, a lot of ways of really quick rise. And uh, you know, he's he's obviously with his background very very adept at at you working with those young players. I mean, he worked with really young players. I mean, he worked with, you know, the the 16 and under and the 14 and under at the Chicago Mission. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, uh, minor hockey program. So, I mean, you know, 20, 22-year-olds, you know, by that standard are, you know, a lot further along. So, um, obviously, there's that part, but then there's the whole other side of, you know, managing young players, you know, managing, you know, you know bench, you know, bench coaching, everything that comes with that, you know, game management. So uh, he's been good though. Like that's, uh, that's been a real, I think pleasant, I won't say surprise, but just, you know, pleasant development uh, for the Hawks and really for Rockford as well. Um, Having him in there and and doing a really good job. He relates well to the young players, obviously not surprisingly. So um, he's, uh, he's kind of come along um, fast in really just a number of uh, few years. Let's talk about San Diego. Mm-hmm. We knew Roy Sommer couldn't stay away from coaching. No, no. Oh, no, yeah, I'm no. going to, like, sit, like jump on my horse and ride into the sunset. Not a chance. So he's right back at it as a coach in the American Hockey League with San Diego it, with an organization that is clearly rebuilding, and they needed a steady hand like Roy to come in and go with his track record because everyone in the American League is going to listen to him. There isn't a player – that can't look at his resume and say, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing or what he's talking about. He's developed more NHL players than any other American League coach in the history of the game. 130 players plus uh, during San Jose. time. I mean, he's had really one of the most amazing careers, I think, that have really kind of gone under the radar, if you think about it. Like, he was – he may have well been the first California-born player. <laughs> to you know, born and raised too, not somebody that you know was there and then moved. Uh, you know, when they were two, like like born and raised in the in the San Francisco Bay Area, went up, uh, played junior in the the mid seventies in Alberta. When obviously that was <laughs> that was a whole other can of worms, right? Like you know, so he goes up there as a seventeen year old kid from California, um, basically literally fights his way into the league. Um, Ends up making a, a long playing career for himself. Uh, plays some NHL games. Um, goes into coaching in the uh, the late '80s. Uh, he was San Jose's AHL head coach in for Kentucky four seasons. Yeah, Kentucky, Cleveland, Worcester, San Jose. Right, like I mean that is I mean, and he's been there for that whole entire. You know, you you know well what the AHL the late '90s was like. It was a completely different animal from what it is today, um, both in terms of the style of hockey, the, the type of players, I mean, everything, right? Like the coaching uh, mindset and mentality that you need. Um, so he's been able to evolve right along the way, you know, like a real kind of old school guy, but he's been able to to modernize himself and, and stay up with, you know, today's personalities. And if you think about it, like he's 66 years old and he's relating to guys that are 20. Right. Like, you know, that's, yeah. uh, I think, a real credit to him, you know, that, to be able to really change with the times. So, um, you know, it's um, it's going to be sad when Roy's not in, in hockey anymore. Right. Like he's he's just been such an institution um, for so long. I mean, and, you know, like he's one of those players or one of those coaches, when you ask a player, their face lights up right away. Like they love him. I'll talk all day, you know, about Roy Sommer. I mean, 
great stories, uh, you know, just very beloved, very highly respected coach for for 30 plus years now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting, you know, but, uh, but I wasn't totally surprised when Roy came back, right? Like I know he likes his, uh, his uh, quiet and his solitude up in Montana, you know, in the summers, but uh, you know, he has, still has that edge, right? Like, and so when he got that, uh, that offer to come to San Diego, uh, you know, I remember talking to him right around that time. He was like, he didn't have to think twice, right? Like his, him and his wife were, <laughs> were on the way uh, to head down to San Diego. Well, I mean, one, it's why wouldn't you want to live in San Diego? So it's a great place to live. And all he has to do is just coach, like do what he loves, which is coach hockey. And when you're in a situation where you have new general manager and Rob DeMaio, uh, you have new general manager in, in Anaheim, obviously with Pat for beak and they're in a rebuilding mode. So yeah. let's go out and find the guy who has the best track record uh, as a coach of developing players and see if we can pull this guy out of retirement. Yeah. And, that- you, and honestly, for me, if I, in an organization, we've got to get um, take off in a, in a quick second. But I just want to follow this up saying, if I'm an initial organization, I would throw whatever money is necessary at Roy Sommer. Because the amount of money you pay him is nothing comparative to what he could do in terms of developing your players. So from that standpoint, I think it's a great hire. Uh, Patrick, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate the insight and look forward to speaking to you next week. Great. Thank you. That's Patrick Williams. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on and off ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are packed and powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream. For student athletes looking to take their game and studies to another level, 
at juniorprospecthockeyleague.com. We're speaking with Mark Kronowit, Executive Director of Silent Ice. And the topic this week is the academy system versus minor hockey. Now, I'm looking at it from a parent's perspective because I have kids in minor hockey. But I look at the cost of an academy, particularly in Canada. I think in the States, it's a, a little bit different. And the reason why I say that is our Canadian university costs are not nearly at the same price as the universities in the United States. So for an ex- I'll use an example for the parents in the United States. For my undergrad, my master's, and now I'm taking a PhD, it might cost $90,000 for all three. And there are, in some cases, parents are paying fifty dollars to $80,000 a year for their kids. So think about that's the advantage of trying to get their kid a Div 1 scholarship, whether it's a male or a female in the States. So I understand that. Inside of Canada, I don't understand why a parent is paying $20,000, $25,000 a year for that type of academy. Because even if they make it through, say, the Western Hockey League, and say they get drafted, and say they go into the American Hockey League, you know how much money they make in the American Hockey League? You might be making $75,000, $65,000 a year. Like, unless you make the NHL, you're really probably make topping out at one hundred and fifty. So you're going to pay seventy five grand. That doesn't even include any type of university education, unless you end up not going, um, going into the Canadian, taking your college fund from the CHL, and then going that route. So to me, that's Mark. I don't understand the value of the academy system versus minor hockey inside of Canada. Well, I think there's a lot to be said, Shane, for the U.S. model. Um, USA Hockey has taken a very progressive and open approach to trying to attract hockey into new regions. Uh, you know, I look at uh, Ryan Smith, who's one of our partners down in Nashville. You know, he was able to go and put together a program for his athletes, and uh, USA Hockey supports that. And what it does is it creates competition down there. Um, and through that competition, what ends up happening is, is you know, you have then essentially price competitiveness where you people need to be offer good value for their products. And then kind of to your point, Shane, you know, when you look at the cost of sending your son to, uh, you know, he thinks he's a high-end prospect or daughter, but sending him to the NCAA school in the U.S., uh, you know, it's pretty daunting. You know, you're looking at twenty dollars to $30,000 a year or more. Uh, versus in Canada, like you mentioned, uh, it's a lot more reasonable. It's in that ten dollars to $15,000 range for a lot of uh, the undergraduate programs. But fundamentally, when you look at kind of the difference between the minor hockey and the academy model, um, you know, there's two different, I, I think there's a third, which you kind of need to include. So you've kind of got minor hockey and then the sanctioned CSSHL or academy-based schools here in Canada. And then over on the right side of that, you have the independent, uh, non-sanctioned uh, uh, prospects leagues like the Junior Prospects Hockey League or the Hockey Super League, which is there and it's quite, it's independent and has a different model. You know, when you look at minor hockey specifically, you know, I think they have done a really good job at the lower levels of keeping it accessible to families. And, you know, we think about the programs, you know, you start off when you're five or six years old in your community and you go up through your community, but there's this this inflection point for a lot of athletes where they have to make a decision whether or not they're going to move towards a more elite stream or they want to stay more in a recreational type stream. And when that happens, then parents are forced with the choice. And it kind of happens at that U14 level yeah, where you got to choose either you're going to go into uh, the 
triple uh, A type traditional minor hockey system, or she can go to the academies. Now I got to give it to the, the, the minor hockey associations. They've really done a good job about keeping their costs in line. And then on the other side of it, you have the, like the CSSHL where you've got, you know, a more integrated type program, but you know, each of those uh, schools are owned individually uh, versus the model, like in the independent junior prospects hockey league, which is owned by the league. And, and you get a lot of different cost benefits from that. So I, I think it is really important to look at costs as being a, a challenge for any elite athlete. So, you know, what do you do um, if you're feeling the pressure as a family, uh, you know, you're, you're being told, you know, you need to go to a, a high-end academy, spend $30,000 a year in order to create that opportunity for yourself. But what really is that opportunity? And how do you ever see a return on that investment? Absolutely. You know, you make it to the NHL and uh, you sign a pro contract. But even if you sign a pro contract, you might end up in the American Hockey League making American Hockey League wages. And now you start looking at that. How does that really make any sense, Shane? It doesn't. It doesn't. It Honestly, it doesn't make any sense uh, economically of what your investment is. And I don't now I haven't done all the research on, on this, but I would be surprised if the probability of the players say when we played, you know, like you go through the 80s and 90s, those players, what the probability of coming out of minor hockey to play in the NHL and the probability of pl- playing in minor hockey or the academy, regardless of what stream you're in and make it to the NHL. I bet you that probability hasn't changed very little. But but the cost of that has changed dramatically. Well, and I I think there's some ways around it. Um, I strongly believe in the vertical integration model, and this is kind of where we're missing, you know, whether it's minor hockey um, or the traditional uh, sanctioned leagues, none of these uh, uh, leagues are integrated into junior programs. And that's where we try to be a little bit different in the independent model. This is where we pick up some of our cost advantages. So, uh, currently, we have three out of our eight hubs are attached to junior A teams. Uh, and Spruce Grove with the Titans were attached to the Spruce Grove Saints. And uh, the, uh, the Wild out on the coast are attached to the Couch and Valley team. And um, in Kelowna, the Okanagan uh, uh, hub is attached to the West Coast Wild. And we're looking to expand into, uh, in, into the um, Vancouver area with a similar type of model. And that's kind of the model that we're heading. And here's what you pick up when you have it. And this is how it affects your costs. You know, if you're able to leverage off of your junior staff, meaning your coaches, your trainers, your assistant coaches, your GM, everybody, your scouting staff, and and those people are already on that salary. And you're able to platoon them in and help support through some of the skills programming, some of those other things that you're only normally able to access through the junior programs. And you're able to drive that back down into your prospects, which whether it's the CSSHL, uh, the AAA leagues, or the Junior Prospects Hockey League, I think there's a great advantage to that. And what it means is then it makes it more accessible for parents without kind of knocking down the type of skill that you're, uh, the skill development that you're offering to your players. So I really see that as one of the advantages of having the fully integrated program. I see it as the way that it should be in the future. You know, I reflect on where um, I spent some time working in the soccer industry and I look at, you know, how European soccer clubs work and, you know, they are all about vertical integration from the time a kid is five years old, as they move through the system and move up into their programs, you know, the technical director of a, of, of a football club will have responsibility from all the way from those five-year-old players. to so their U18, their U20, U23, their, and, and, and then their pro team. And it's fully integrated from a pro level not just from a prospect at like a junior type level, it's right into the pro 
uh, protein level all the way back down through. And that's how you kind of get this higher level of delivery of uh, skill development and, and, and for, for athletes and through that vertical integration, what you do is you pick up all those cost saving chain. You know, and that certainly makes sense, but also I think there, we may have to reconsider how much more educational advantage can come to these academies. I look at it like I, w- I want to see these athletes be have the top level of academic prowess that you know, it, to the point where teams are beating down their doors. NCAA teams are beating down their doors because every one of these students are maxing out on their SATs and they have the highest level of academic prowess um, in, in including off ice leadership. Like we're, we're in the business of building citizens of leaders, not just hockey players. Yeah. We talk about that all the time with our athletes and with our coaches. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, that education side of it, you know, I know that when an Ivy league school, for example, comes to a junior A game, uh, you're the guy from Cornell who's or Brown or Harvard or whatever. And you basically go down the list and you go to the GM and you say, how many of these kids would qualify to come into my program? And you basically cross like, 90% of the list off, which is unfortunate. And it's like, how do we move that, move that more so that more people can access more pro- programs? You know, we've definitely seen some expansion in the U S in the NCAA programs. We're seeing more div one programs come online, which create more opportunities for players. And, you know, I really think it's a good model. If you can go and you can, you know, kind of go through the grassroots type program and then move into something like the junior prospects hockey league, where you're directly tied into a junior a program, by the time you get into that junior A program, if you've got your academics straight, you're, you know, you, you've got a straight line to the NCAA, if you've got the talent and, and the people out there promoting you. And, you know, we've seen that with our junior A saints club this year, we have like 10 of our guys already committed and um, it's really positive. I think the model's working um, and, and it shows that there is a different way that you can actually come through the system. And, you know, we've talked about it on some of the previous shows that, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get to pro hockey and to be a pro- professional prospect. And, and as part of that, what we don't want to do is limit it by your socioeconomic uh, limitations. We want to create opportunities for more athletes to participate at the highest level. And I think that's a responsibility as people who are stewards of the game right now. Well, Mark, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show once again. Really appreciate it and look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks, Shane. Have a great week. That's Mark Cronowit, Executive Director for Silent Ice. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. The Junior Prospect Hockey League is Western Canada's newest elite developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. The JPHL features professional coaches and skill development coaches, along with comprehensive practice, game, and academic schedule, allowing athletes to be successful in a more cost-effective model compared to similar hockey and school programs. To learn more and see why the JPHL is the ideal choice for your student-athlete and family, visit JuniorProspectsHockeyLeague.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat 
Instats video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back on Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. Uh, we are continu- continuing with our great topic and subject matter this week with Dave Poole and Behind the Curtain. Dave, this week is... The topic is process of hiring hockey operations staff and personnel. So I know you've been in those situations before. I find it a, a fascinating topic, and I've touched base with different people in the industry when they're in that process. Um, I think one of the most dramatic ones I've seen in the past was obviously the Toronto Maple Leafs when Kyle Dubas took over, and it was you know, a lot of personnel changing, and you know that can be very um, – a little bit traumatic for the team when you have a lot of new people coming in and people moving out and just trying to fit all those people together on a team. It's no different than the team on the ice. If you make a lot of changes in an off season or you're bringing in younger players, talk about the process, the hiring process of finding the right people as individuals, but also finding the right skill sets and attributes so that you can find a cohesion and some balance in your group. Well, it's a critical first step. And, and, you know, and to the Toronto situation, Claude Roselle and I were on the other side of that. And so we were right. the last two people removed from that previous organization. Dave Nonis did stay for another year in a support role, but it was Claude Roselle and I that overlapped with Brendan Shanahan for about three months um, and ran that 2014 draft and then, uh, and then did the arbitration and the free agency and that piece of it. And so that was a time of change in my life. And, and certainly, you know, I was on the front end of it in 2009 when Brian Burke came into Toronto and was a part of that group with Dave Morrison that hired, you know, some of those pro scouts and amateur scouts. And it was about finding a different group and speaking to the scouting group. You want a balance in there of personalities. And, you know, if you flash forward to the way, let's take the amateur side first. The amateur side and the pro side are very different from each other. On the amateur side, I want you to tell me what a 17-year-old is going to look like in five years or seven years or eight years. And on the pro side, I want you to tell me what he is right now, if there is an upside, and how he can contribute to the exact team that's on the ice right now in your organization. So those are two very different jobs. And it's about when you have an amateur staff, it truly is a staff because you put all these characters and they are characters, Shane, from around the world into a room. And, you know, they have their lists from their respective areas, geographical areas. And just think about that to start with. You're putting, 
you know, a Swedish scout together, a Finnish scout together. Um, you have somebody from Czechia potentially. And, and then we had someone from Russia as well. And maybe a head European scout. But then you've got the U.S. side. So it's college hockey. It's, you know, it's prep school hockey in New England, which is very different from the junior leagues in the U.S., the USHL, the North American Hockey League. And then go into Canada. And even within Canada, differences from the West into the Ontario Hockey League and then into Quebec. And we had to hire a couple of scouts and, and Dave Morrison, you know, we, we relied on his experience to go back into. And this is, this is the interesting part because I always emphasize to people, if you're in a room and it's filled with hockey people, there's a great chance at some point you're going to be working with someone or working around someone in that room who you're not currently working with right now. And you're always making an impression. So be you above all. And that's what, you know, if I'm giving advice to young people, I, I'm telling them to be themselves because ultimately that's who they're going to have to be. And, and then the ultimate, you're looking for people willing to do the work. It's a very tough job and it's an all consuming job. It doesn't leave you when you go home after a game it simply doesn't um, I was fascinated with the reporting system I would get up first thing in the morning and read reports and I'd read reports coming in from all over and even the style of reports I didn't want a cookie cutter report chain that said you know that picked buzzwords out I wanted your impression of what you saw and how that could impact our hockey team and so I think you know, we had a, a very good group in Toronto when I was there, a very talented group. Dave Morrison was the leader. He has gone from the director of scouting onto the pro side now, but he did a lot of amateur work and watching players grow up through an organization. So um, you want an eclectic group. You want a group that's willing to speak their mind. If you get everyone of a like opinion, then, then you're so in a used. vacuum. You are. If I'm in a room and everyone's telling me what I already know, then what good does that do me? And, and you know, so I, I think that's the important part about being yourself and understanding. And maybe you're not a fit for an organization. You know, if you're interviewing for a position and you sense that they want something or need something totally different than you are, then why would you be interested in the job? It doesn't make sense. And, you know, and, and I understand people have to work, but you've also got to be you when you do work. And I think that's very important. Thoughts on, you know, you touched on the amateur and pro staff, but there's also the player development department. There is the American League franchise of, you know, who's going to be the assistant general manager there. He has to work directly with player development. They have to work directly if they have a human performance department, uh, you know, your mental coaches, all of that has to be interwoven. Talk about that aspect of the hockey operations department in terms of trying to, fill out and choose and hire those types of personnel as well. The off ice part has grown immensely in the last 12 or 15 years. It simply has the performance coach aspect of it. You know, the, the, you know, maybe the most important part and this will sound crazy from a hockey standpoint or the training group and, you know, the, the, the medical training group and being able to keep players on the ice and do it in the proper fashion, the coordination with the medical department, all integral in success but the minor league system now is so important the draft and development aspect of it and because you have to have entry-level contracts constantly entering your team because of the price point because of 
the hard salary cap, and you have to have a development structure. And the balance between winning at the American League level and producing players at the American League level is a very challenging one because you want your young players in a winning environment. And yet you can't do it at the expense of not developing players. So you've got a big face-off to take in the defensive zone. Do you put out a 31-year-old who you know is going to win it in the American League? Or do you put out a 21-year-old who has a great chance of losing it but needs that experience? And so you've got to have the right coaches in place that are willing, in a sense, to sacrifice their win-loss record. And that's tough because they're going to be evaluated on their win-loss record. And, you know, you might say, well... Is that fair, you know, though? I mean, within it's an organizational it's, philosophy. It's not fair, but it's real. Yeah. If you look at coaches that get elevated, they're like, well, he won in the American League. Okay. One with one. Um, exactly. You know, it, you know, and you look at different types of teams in the American League. In, you know, take an example. It's an independently owned franchise, so it's fair to talk about it. It's the Chicago Wolves. I mean, they're built with, you know, with the, the veteran rule, they'll keep an excess of veterans there and rotate them in and out at their own cost in order to win. And that's fine. And that's the market and that's fine. And that's their prerogative. But if you're putting development prospects in there, where do they fit into that? And how is the coach evaluated? And it's really tough to be an American league coach with an organization in a growth arc because you're expected you're going to get a host of young players because the draft numbers are high. You're going to get a host of young players and you're going to get the challenge to develop them. And you're going to say, well, wait a second. I want to develop them within a winning environment. That's the balance. So you do need the right mix of veterans in that room because you want your young guys learning from them. So, you know, from a standpoint of, of sports science, so important right now, nutrition, all of those different aspects. You know, if you think about your sports psychologist, it used to be a standalone position. It's not now um, because of the different personalities you have to work with and, you know, the different areas and, and different steps that that area has taken, even in terms of sensitivity to, you know, various situations off of the ice. It's huge right now. It's absolutely enormous. And the goal is to put the player in the right environment, even to walk into the room you know, you'll walk into a pro room now and a lot of them put monitors on, heart monitors and burn rate monitors. And immediately when they walk into a room and it's all digested as part of sports science and things that we didn't have when I was a player. I mean, I've been out of playing now for you know close to 30 years, and which is crazy to think of. And it's very, very different. But you have to have, above all, you have to have talented people that you trust and you have to let them do their job, Shane. You have to. And it, it's too wide a variety of, of positions and different variations within the sport. You know, and, and I know you'll get the argument old school. There's always a place for old school. And, you know, some of the great veteran scouts you would sit beside in a press That's how I learned. I would, That's how I learned. Absolutely. You know, you work with veterans. I learned so much from some of the veteran guys I worked with in the industry. And, and guys like, and, and we've talked about them off air, guys like Mike Penny, I worked with closely in Toronto. You know, how can you not learn from a Mike Penny in the experiences he's had? And those guys are cagey because they've adjusted more than they'll even let on to the current day. You know, they'll play the old school card, but you know darn well in order to survive in this industry, they've made adjustments in the way they look at things and the way they do things. A hundred percent. Dave, I want to thank you uh, once again for coming on our show. Great insight in, in that topic and look forward to speaking to you next week.
This has been another edition of Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio. You can listen to the show on your favorite podcast network or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at HP Radio and at HockeyProspectRadio.com. Thank you to all our guests, and we will see you at the rink.